Well, good morning to you all. You're very welcome. As you heard, the title to the talk is Philosophy and Get a Life, and the subtitle is Are We Living a Life or Are We Living a Lie? Now, I should tell you this, that this talk is being given with a health warning. I did give this talk in Townley Hall about 18 months ago and a lady came up to me a fortnight later and said that she had not slept since she had heard the talk. I told her I hadn't slept since I had written it. Uh, now, it is a rather punchy talk and it's meant to be punchy and not in a, in a violent way to beat you up or something, but to wake you up. So it is going to ask a series of questions. And the idea is that you just let them in and see how the mind responds. And your own answers will actually tell you whether you are living a life or are living a lie. There's a reasonably happy ending to the talk, so um, <coughs> you can allow yourself to get depressed at the initial stages. So, <clears throat> to start off, what is a human being? In the Bible it says that man is made in the image of God. So what God is like, man in truth is like. So what is God like? Well, in scripture again it says that God is said to be pure, conscious, all knowledge, limitless love, creative, eternal, and full of bliss. And if this is true, then this is what man in truth is like. What is a human life then? Well, since man is eternal, in this talk, by life is meant to have a body, so to live for 80 or 100 years. The purpose of a human life is to reveal our essential nature, i.e. in our lives to experience and express wisdom, bliss, love, freedom, peace and creativity. If this is not our experience, then the initial purpose of human life becomes to restore our lives to this essential perfection, or in the words of scripture, to find our way back to God. Having done this, we then live as an expression of our true nature, revealing and experiencing all the qualities that we have mentioned already in everything we think, feel, and do. So, do we have a life? Shakespeare said, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So is that my life? A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Or was Shakespeare referring to somebody else? Ralph Waldo Emerson said about human life under ignorance, he said that man is thus metamorphosed into a thing, into many things. The planter who is man sent out into the field to gather food is seldom cheered by any idea of the true dignity of his ministry. He sees his bushel and his cart and nothing beyond and sinks into the farmer 
instead of man on the farm. The tradesman scarcely ever gives an ideal worth to his work, but is ridden by the routine of his craft, and the soul is subject to dollars. The priest becomes a form, the attorney a statute book, the mechanic a machine, the sailor a rope on the ship. So do we experience the true dignity of our ministry? Are we ridden by routine? And are our souls subject to dollars? And have our lives become the equivalent of ropes on a ship? Some of those that we might consider to have lived great lives on their deathbeds have lamented at how they had in fact wasted their lives. It is said that Leonardo da Vinci died crying in the arms of the King of France for having wasted his life. Now when I think of his life and I think of all the incredible things that he invented and all the benefits he brought to mankind, I think my life is just so insignificant in relation to his. But he saw something that led him to the conclusion that he had wasted his life. Newton, on his deathbed, said, I do not know how I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy, playing on the seashore and diverting myself, and now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. George Bernard Shaw was asked if he could live his life again. What would he do? He replied, I would want to be the person I could have been, but was not. And if we were to live our lives again, will we want to be the person we could have been, but are not? So let us see if there are any signs that our lives are not being lived as they should be or could be. Are we ever overcome by the strong feeling that we should be doing something else, be somewhere else, perhaps even with someone else? Do we ever wonder, what if my whole life has been really wrong? Do we quickly turn away from these questions or find something to do so that they will not torment us, so that we will not be forced to really examine our lives? So we're going to look at some more aspects of our lives and ask some more tormenting questions. Now, on an individual basis, only some of these questions will be valid in relation to our lives, and they will obviously be different ones for different people. But let us answer from our hearts and see if our lives stand up to reasonable investigation. With regard to repetition, has life become repetitive, predictable and dull? Are we doing the same old thing? having the same old conversations week in and week out? And is it all fundamentally known with nothing new? When is the last time we discovered something new, exciting and significant? Just consider that. When was the last time you discovered something new, exciting and significant? So that if you wrote into one of the major daily newspapers, they'd actually publish your letter saying what it was you discovered. 
Do we find ourselves thinking too much, filling every moment with thoughts, 95% of which are the same thoughts as we had yesterday, the previous day, and so on? With regard to enthusiasm, how do we feel when we awaken in the morning? Are we enthusiastic, courageous, full of confidence, leaping out of bed to fulfill our destiny? <laughs> or do you get out of bed like I do? You once used to get out of bed like that when you were a little child. So what happened? Maybe one of the reasons that people spend so much time in bed is that they have nothing worth getting out of bed for. Do we sometimes wish we could stay under the covers and not have to face anything? Have we become cautious with the passing years, trying now to only preserve what we have? Are we still excited by our lives? Or has the sense of adventure gone from them? Would you describe your life as exciting and adventurous? And even if you would, would your children describe them as exciting <laughs> and adventurous? Did they sometimes come up to you and say, Dad, what an exciting and adventurous life you live. I'm so looking forward to my life turning out just like yours. <laughs> Have we lost our sense of humor? Have we become too serious? Do we need to lighten up? Has it come to feel like only half a life? Because in fact we're only making half the impulse. With regard to regret or dissatisfaction or emptiness. If we died tonight, would we die dissatisfied? If I said you've got a half an hour to go, are you happy to go? Well, if we have lived fully, we would be happy to die at any time because we would live in a constant state of satisfaction. So are we ready to go? Are we emotionally packed, as they say? Does anything ever really satisfy us? Or is there a nagging sense of something missing? Do we know any more what would satisfy us? Have we anything worth dying for? Because if we haven't, then we really have nothing worth living for. Do we feel any passion for what we do? And are we doing what we love? And the next questions reveal the degree to which we love what we do. How do we feel coming back from our holidays to restart our normal life again? Do we say things like, thank God they're over with? <laughs> you know, now, now I can get back to my real life. Or do you dread a thought into the office on Monday morning and restarting all those things? The grass to be cut, the bins to be put out. All those exciting and adventurous things which fill your life. 
So how strong is the resistance to restart your life? The truth of the matter is you don't want to go back to your life. And you're right. Do we ever wonder as to how it might all have been different? Do we sometimes wonder whether we have ever truly loved? Or in fact, is there such a thing as true love? Do we ever look out and wonder, is there a better life waiting for us? Or have we come to the conclusion that this is just wishful thinking? And does life feel empty at times, empty of real happiness, purpose or significance? And if we think of our lives being the same in 20 years' time as they are now, except for less hair, more arthritis, teeth you take out at night, and that's going to be the only difference. How dreadful does that sound? Another 20 years of this. With regard to tiredness or heaviness, is there a tiredness trying to coordinate our lives? Are we tired of being tired? And do we need the weekend to recover from our week? Do we need our holidays to recover from our year? And at the end of the day, are we often exhausted by our efforts of simply trying to exist and trying to survive? And when we go home in the evening, is all that we can manage to do is to pour a drink and press the remote control. And even that has to be within arm's reach. Because if it's not, you just watch that same old program that you watched it before, and which you already know the ending. Do we sometimes think we would just like to run away, to escape from it all, a nagging desire for a simpler life? How much of our life is pervaded by a, I have to? A sense of I wouldn't if I had the choice, but I have to. With regard to being untrue to ourselves, if we won the lottery, a decent pot, as they say, would we be doing something different? If we would be doing something different, it means we're doing the wrong thing right now. Do we justify our long hours at work with the lies that it is for the good of the firm? or the company makes me, that it is to provide security for the family, or that high taxes force us to, or that we need the money. Have we abandoned our dream, or the promises we made to ourselves when we were young? Have we sold ourselves short? Have we in truth betrayed ourselves? Did we start out with the determination to have first-class lives, first-class marriages, families and careers, etc.? And have we settled for something less? Did we once see ourselves making a difference? Did we once have a vision that gave our lives meaning and gave them a purpose 
and fueled our hopes? And is our work no longer a way of living, but now reduced to a way of earning a living? Have we conformed? When we grew up, did we resign ourselves to behaving the way adults are supposed to behave? Did we really die at 16, but will only be buried in our 80s? How much of what we do counts for anything? Have we sacrificed peace of mind, true freedom, true love, and true happiness to live as we do do? Does anybody know the real you? How many, if any, do we really let in? Are we the same on the inside as we are on the outside? So how wide is your integrity gap? And have we lost our hunger for life, the hunger for meaning, for joy, and for satisfaction? And compared to when we were a child, do we have less energy, less faith, less devotion, less openness, less simplicity, less love, less courage, less brightness of being? Well, then life has harmed us and not developed us. We have not grown large, but simply grown old. Would anybody want our lives? Say you took out one of these little ads in the paper, with a summarized description of your life and said, life for sale. Do you think anybody would bid for it? even if you threw in a Volvo for free, right? <laughs> Do you know that nobody wants your life? Not even you. So does it add up to much? Now that's the happy part of the talk, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> right. So, having answered all these questions, are we living a life or are we living a lie? Now, if we are living a life, the remainder of this talk is irrelevant to us. And you should really leave now. But I'd like you to leave your telephone number because I have a few questions I'd like to put to you myself. <laughs> If we are living, or seem to be living, a lie, or a part of a lie, then we now need to see how to get our lives back on track, because it is never too late. The first thing to do is to accept responsibility for our lives. The danger is that people often blame everyone and everything else for how their lives have turned out or don't accept responsibility. They say things like, I can't help my temper, as if somebody else is supposed to be helping. Or my parents did not encourage me enough in sport, or, or my boss does not recognize my talents, or I have no choice about how much I work. 
Well, don't leave it to the end of our lives to figure out what it is that we really want. The statement, if youth only knew, and if age only could, is so true. So, how are we going to get a life? Well, the first thing is we're going to see how we might enlarge our lives. And the first aspect of that is change. Einstein's definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. <laughs> so, those who would like to admit to insanity can put up their hands right now. <laughs> For us to live true and full lives, change needs to take place. And for change to take place, we need to overcome habits. This is not easy. We can put positive pressure on ourselves to overcome habit by telling family or friends of what we are going to do. We can fix precise deadlines for things to happen. And we need to be resolute. It is said that if we can practice something for 28 days in a row without fail, i.e. a full cycle of the moon, we can either remove an old habit or establish a new one forever. And it is important that we learn to enjoy the process of change and not just the outcome of change, or else we will be defeated on the way. So we need to enjoy dieting and not just being slim. All right? Self-improvement needs to be practiced continuously, so we should learn something new every day. Each morning decide that we will be a better person at the end of the day than we were at the beginning. And if you have been sliding downhill today already, you have a few hours to regain your former heights. The second aspect of enlarging our lives is willpower. Epictetus said, no man is free who is not master of himself. We may have some free time, but do we have freedom? To have a life, we need to be not slaves to our weaker impulses. So good people strengthen themselves ceaselessly. And what is required is to cultivate self-leadership. And self-leadership requires willpower. Willpower allows us to become masters of our personal worlds. Then no hurdle will be too high to overcome, no challenge too great, no crises that we cannot handle. It is willpower that allows us to keep commitments to ourselves and others, to refrain from taking insult, and to stop entertaining doubts. The challenge is not to be better than other people. So we don't compete against others. We compete against ourselves and try to be better than we were yesterday. Our life is a one-horse race. There is nothing noble in being superior to others. True nobility lies in being superior to our former selves. Without willpower, nothing can happen. It gives us the strength to act, the courage to act, and the confidence to act as we should.
If unable to lead ourselves, we will be unable to lead a business, unable to lead a family, and unable to lead useful and satisfying lives. Winston Churchill said, Sure I am that this day we are masters of our fate, that the task which has been set before us is not above our strengths, that its pangs and toils are not beyond my endurance. As long as we have faith in our own cause and an unconquerable will to win, victory will not be denied us. And albeit said in a different context, this applies to each and every one of our lives today. It is our birthright to be all that we could be. We do not have to be prisoners of our past. We can be the architects of our future. Imagine with firm resolution and a strengthening of our willpower what we could achieve. We could dare to live the life for which we came into this world. The next factor with regard to enlarging our lives is choice and decision making. The image that we hold of ourselves is what governs our lives. If our self-image is of being weak or inferior to others, then life will unfold according to that image. If we see ourselves as courageous, full of vitality, capable, then our actions will correspond to these qualities. Effectively, life gives us what we ask of us. So what are you asking of life? Self-image is not a reality. It is chosen. So we can choose that which allows greatness and fulfillment. Einstein said, to have a better life, we must keep choosing how we are living. Not living out the choices of 20 years ago, but living out today's choice. So we need to decide from the depths of our being that we will take charge of our lives and that we will raise them to the highest level. The minute we choose this, our life changes. It is like waking up out of a dream. We get our first taste of real freedom, of real potentiality. So we can decide now, and I mean right now, to take control of our lives, to be masters of our fate, and to run our own race. The next factor is to do with time. And it's important to face the truth with regard to time. Are we just making a living, or are we creating a life worth living. There's a colossal difference between making a lot of money and making a lot of life. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is to think that they are too busy to spend time working on themselves, i.e. on self-development. Do not be fooled by the voice in the head that says we have no time to give to improving ourselves. The only purpose of this voice is to ensure that we have a life of mediocrity. We may think that we are busy, but the real question for us is, 
What are we busy about? Everybody should take time to master their mind, care for their body, and nourish their heart or soul. So focus your time around your priorities. Never sacrifice the important for the trivial. Because time passes, whether we will it or not, and so we never waste time. Adopting this attitude, we will then focus on the meaningful things of life that we've been putting off, and we will stop squandering time on the petty and irrelevant. Time spent developing ourselves is never wasted. It is the best investment a human being can make because it makes life efficient, large, and satisfying. Now, time is equal for all, but what separates those who have a life and those who live a lie is the way they use their time. Having time is not being idle. Busy people are very efficient with their time and thus are the only ones who have time. So always live in the now. It is the only time we have. Never, ever, ever put off living. Do not presume we will have time in the future. Do not think that when the company is successfully established or when we have enough money that we will attend then to this or that. So do we habitually put off living, postponing happiness now, freedom now, and peace now for a never-to-be-attained future happiness, freedom, and peace? Ask yourself this question. When are you going to be perfectly happy? Now, if the answer is not now, then it's never. So do not postpone happiness for the sake of worldly gain. Today is the only day we can be happy. As Albert Camus said, real generosity towards the future consists on giving all to what is present. There are three things in life which are sacrosanct with regard to time. We must have the right amount of time for self-development. We must have the right amount of time for family. And we must have the right amount of time for friends. And when we have satisfied these three requirements, then we can allocate the balance of available time to career, recreation, etc. Many put career first, and family, etc. is allocated what is left over time-wise. And this simply does not work. You don't get a life. So have we spent too much time making a living and too little time creating a life? Have we become so busy chasing the big pleasures of life that we've missed out on all the little ones? Have we time for our friends to listen to the laughter of children, to watch the sunset, to smell a flower? Do we waste a lot of our time with worrying, brooding over the future, and fretting about the past? Do we waste time in idle chatter, 
reading junk mail or useless magazines. If we want to see how big our lives are, examine how we spend time. Ask ourselves, to what do we give our attention to all day long, day after day? Now, we now need to examine our use of heart and mind so that they may lend support to us to enlarge our lives. The first thing with regard to the heart is to do what we love. This is the secret to enlarging a life. To find out what we really love to do and then to do it. To direct all our energies to it. When we do what we love, an abundance of energy necessary for its execution flows in us. Contrarywise, when we do what we do not love, it will demand all our energy just to carry it out. We ought never to do anything because we have to. So much that we do is because we feel we have to. Do only that which we love to and which is the right thing to do. Especially do the things that we've always wanted to, but postponed. So climb that mountain, run that marathon, visit that country, learn that language, paint or whatever. And this is the way to care for our souls or hearts. If we do this, if we do what we love to do, then we will get back into our lives passion. So that we will wake up to new and fresh mornings of life and we will leap out of our beds. Happiness is to do with self-worth and not our net worth. It is an inner thing independent of the external world. It's independent of money and is to do with finding meaning in our lives. It is very important to note that we cannot make things happen, but we can always do our best. And in doing our best, satisfaction is guaranteed. So success does not guarantee satisfaction. There are many who are successful, but not satisfied. But anybody who does their best is satisfied whether success or failure follows. If you are not satisfied with your life as it is right now, it probably means that you're not giving it your best. The heart needs to open, so every day reflect on what we have been provided with and be grateful, for gratitude opens the heart. Without the heart, there can be no strength in life. And to strengthen the heart, one needs to develop the virtues. So we should do this. We should select five virtues. The five virtues that we most admire in the human being. Whether they be fortitude, honesty, generosity, magnanimity or whatever. But those five that inspire you. And then each year, for five years, develop one of these five virtues to its fullest possible extent. If you do this, 
And every one of us is capable of doing this. If you do this, in five years' time, we will be unrecognizable. One of them needs to be courage. Because without courage, life has to be small and insignificant. So be reckless. Ask yourself the last time, when were you reckless? Now, I don't mean driving down a country road with no lights on and a lot of drink taken. Not that sort of recklessness, but real recklessness. Take the road less traveled. Stop being so practical all the time. If you have the heart of a chartered accountant, shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of your comfort zone. Do you recognize your comfort zone? Well, get out of it. When we conquer fear, we conquer life. Because fortune favors the brave. The true definition of failure has nothing to do with not succeeding. Rather, failure is not having the courage to try. Not succeeding need not be a bad thing because it teaches. Whereas fear of failure is the real killer. Because with the fear of failure, not trying anything, we simply learn nothing. So as a practice, we should search and root out every fear that resides in our hearts. Now there is a universal cure for all fears no matter how deeply embedded they are in our hearts, no, no matter how large they are, a simple cure for all fears. But most people are too afraid to try it. <laughs> and if you want to know the cure to all fears, it's simply this. As a daily practice, always do what you are afraid to do without denying what reason tells you. Fear is not real, it is a product of imagination. So it never stands up to experience. It dissolves in experience. So always do what you're afraid to do, but subject to reason. With courage, we can do whatever we want to, and it will allow us to run our own race to the full. The next factor with regard to the heart and enlarging our lives is simplicity. The opening of the heart leads to a natural simplicity arising in life. Desires and needs are reduced and we then realize that the absence of wants is how satisfaction arises, not the fulfillment of them. Fulfilling wants simply increases them like the drug addict and his fix whereas reducing wants frees us. Now, each of us has our own complexities, so the return to simplicity will be unique for each of us. If we move from wants to needs, then our lives will become simple. Wants have no limit and tend to be excessive, whereas needs are measured and simple. 
needs cause no burden, whereas what I want is laden with burdens. Now, this is a law which we need to appreciate. We need to understand that it is never to our advantage to have more than we need. Never. We recognize this with food. To have more food than we need in our stomach is not an advantage. It is a burden to the stomach and to all of us. And we recognize that with regard to food. But what about money? Do you think to have more money in your bank account than you need is a burden? Or is that one that you're willing to carry? <laughs> For the sake of the family or mankind? <laughs> to have more money than you need is a burden. Whatever it is, to have more than we need is a burden and full of complications. So whatever you have right now, ask yourself, why do you want more? You should reflect on that question. It's not a pretty question, and the answers are even uglier. <laughs> but you should reflect on it. Why do you want more than what you have now? With a simple life, time expands for us. We begin to spend more time with those we love. We will be able to stop to smell the proverbial roses. We will notice the leaves and the buds on the trees. We'll feel the wind on our faces. and We'll see the light in the human eye and the beauty in the moon. And we come out of the fast lane of life and we stop chasing the big, complicated and expensive pleasures of life. And then we begin to enjoy the little, simple and free ones. I've said this before, but in one of our parenting courses, or I think it's the family course that we run in Dublin, the family are asked to gather around, parents and children, and say, what are the things that we love to do together, that we wish to do more of? And without exception, the children never say that we want to go to Disneyland more, or we want more continental holidays, or more of this and that. They say things like, we want to go for walks together. We want to play games together. I wish you just push me on the swing a bit more. The real pleasures of life are little, simple, and free. We no longer need to speak all the time, and now can and do enjoy the silence and stillness. And instead of just being well off, we now enjoy well-being. We focus on our priorities, and life becomes uncluttered, peaceful, and rewarding. The next factor with regard to the heart is making a contribution. Now we get a living from our job, but we get a life by the contribution we make to others. As William Blake said, everything that lives, lives not alone, not for itself. The size of our lives is determined by the extent of our contribution. 
And it is not possible to live for oneself and yet live a big life. Now, would you like to achieve greatness? Would you like to have greatness in your life? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. gave the answer. He said, not everyone can achieve fame, but everybody can achieve greatness. And it is through service that this greatness is achieved. He who serves the most reaps the most in every aspect of life. And if we selflessly serve others, a remarkable thing happens. The universe takes care of us. To have a life, our lives should improve the lives of others. We can give our kindness, our energy, our time, our attention, our compassion, and our presence to others. And let us use our talents, for they are the treasure with which we came into this world. They are what we have to offer for the common good. The purpose in life is a life of purpose. It is to matter, to count, to stand for something, to make a difference. Our life should not die with us. And for our lives to be great, we need to leave a real legacy, something that does not end with us. And I've said this before, but when we die, our children will order two things. A coffin and a skip. <laughs> and in that skip <laughs> will go most trace of your life. They just keep one photograph, which is put on the, the mantelpiece. That's not your legacy, what goes into the skip, or even what is put on the mantelpiece. So what is our legacy going to be to the generations that will follow? Well, how many lives we have improved by the time we die, that is the real legacy to leave behind. With regard to the mind and its use for enlarging the life, we have to change our use of mind. We need to get control over our minds. Because when we control our thoughts, we control our minds. And controlling our mind, we control our lives. And controlling our lives, we become masters of our destiny. Most people think that they have no power over their thoughts. The thoughts just happen to them. However, we can choose what we think about in any given moment. If we fill our minds with words or thoughts of hope, then our lives will be full of hope. If despair, then our lives will be filled with despair. In effect, we are what we think about all day long, so never cultivate thoughts of failure. If we think that failure is impossible, then success is guaranteed. The quality of our thoughts determines the quality of our lives. So ask ourselves, what do we think about all day long? Yesterday, what did you think about all day long? Were your thoughts trivial or profound? 
where we cannot think trivial thoughts and yet live profound lives. So every day for 30 minutes, read the best literature that the world has produced, what scripture the wise or those who have lived great lives say. Feed the mind with the best food, for it is not possible for better to come out than what is put in. The mind is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. It can be our worst enemy or our best friend. It can lead us to suicide or help us to find our way back to God. Winston Churchill said, the price of greatness is responsibility over each of your thoughts. So we should accept full responsibility for the state of our mind. Improve our minds by learning something new every day and soon we will be learned. Most people live every day without giving any thought to it. We are on automatic in a dreamlike existence. We get up, wash, breakfast, go to work, have conversations, etc. Without giving any thought to what we are doing and why we are doing it. So develop a deathbed mentality. This is not a depressing concept. A deathbed mentality means I have only a day to live. What would you do if this was your last day? How would you treat your family and your colleagues if this was your last day? How would we talk to those whom we love? This deathbed mentality will eliminate the trivia from our lives and also bring a quality and enrichment to them. So become fully present, fully attending to what is in front of us every moment of our lives. The dream-like existence is possible because we are living in the already known, the familiar, and with that familiarity in truth, we have developed a contempt for our own lives. Now, that is to do with making our lives enlarged. But how do we make our lives complete? To complete our lives, we need to know who we are in truth and what is the purpose of a human life. A hammer is for hammering, but what is a human being and what is a human life for? If we do not know what a human being is, and what a human life is for, how can we possibly use it fully and wisely? So how are we to discover this? There are three factors. Meditation, true knowledge, and self-examination. Now meditation does many things to help us to make our lives complete. It clears the mind so that it becomes attentive, decisive, and full of reason. It purifies the heart, so that it fills with love, enjoys confidence, courage, generosity of spirit, and breath of vision. Thirdly, it provides energy to the being, necessary to discover the truth about ourselves, and necessary to express it magnificently in our lives.
And finally, it does the most amazing thing of all. It gives the direct experience of the truth about myself, confirming all that scripture and the wise say is true. With regard to knowledge, the knowledge that is necessary to make our lives complete is the knowledge found in scripture and also the words of the wise. They tell us who we are in truth, the purpose of human life, how this may be discovered, and also how we are to express this true knowledge without limit in our lives. And thirdly, self-analysis. Without observation, we cannot see what is happening. And without seeing what is happening, we cannot see error or self-imposed limitation. And without seeing error or self-imposed limitation, there's no possibility of change. The only way to improve tomorrow is to see what was done wrong today. So using today as a benchmark, we are in a position to measure improvement. Every day, there should be a mandatory period for quiet self-analysis. As Carl Jung said, he who looks outside dreams, and he who looks inside awakens. Ideally, self-reflection should be in the same spot, same time, every day. So really wake up and start to live again by asking the fundamental questions of life. And this will enable us to become adventurous again and leave the familiar well-trodden path. Our visions for our lives will only become clear when we look into the depths of our being. One of the great gifts of being a human being is this capacity for self-reflection. So we should make full use of this facility. Really examine our inner worlds, identify the things that are holding us back, and do not suffer from excuseitis, because there are no excuses. And do not blame others. The question is, do we know what we should be doing? Discover the real reason for our being on this earth, and the reason we came into existence. And on discovering it, then let us dedicate our lives to the enactment of it. There is something in all of us which is special or outstanding. A special attribute in which we chiefly excel. It is what we have to offer the world and it is what will fulfill our lives. Do we know it? Each of us has some attribute in which we chiefly excel. Do we know it? When we figure out the main aim of our lives, our destinies, then work ceases. It will all become play, a great drama full of interest and fulfillment. And life becomes permanently joyful. And then we will never again sacrifice the most important for the least important. We won't have time to waste time because life will be so full. Not frenetic, but full. And all our energy and our talents will be focused on our particular objective. We will find that our life's purpose is to a cause greater than ourselves. And it will demand all of us. It will enliven us and we will wake up in the morning with limitless energy and enthusiasm just like we did when we were a child.
Now to conclude, with all that has been said about various practices, with meditation, knowledge and self-examination, we will come to discover the truth about ourselves. We may discover that we are not human beings seeking spiritual experience, but that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Discovering the truth about ourselves, we will then be able to express it fully and gloriously. We will have found our souls and we will get a life. We will be able to say that we gave it all that we had, that we gave it our best shot, that we were true to ourselves, that we realized our potential, that we made a difference, and that we found our way back home. So stop living a lie and get a life. And that's it. So, what would you like to ask? This is from Paul. Um, in pursuit of giving this life, yes. uh, I'm sure you're not advocating that um, there be mass divorces and resignations of jobs and uh, everybody scadoodling off to France to buy pigs. Can you... Uh, <laughs> All right. Can you answer that? Thank yeah, you. no, absolutely. So what's important is this, when one looks at something like getting a life or getting my life, is this is not an excuse for selfishness. It is not an excuse for breaking promises or the abandonment of duty or any of these sort of things. Getting a life will not isolate you from friends, family, all of these sort of things. It will unite you with them. It enlarges the life. It doesn't cause division or separation. It brings about harmony and unity. The reason why people find marriage is difficult has nothing to do with the marriage. It's because they don't have a life. A happy person is happy everywhere. Like a really great sports person is happy when his team loses as well as when it wins. And a very poor sports person is only happy when there's a win situation. So the real key is to find happiness and then express it everywhere. And happy people can express it everywhere. Unhappy people have to go all over the world to find it. So some people can only be happy when the weather's nice. And in England, that gives you about three weekends a year. <laughs> so people take all sorts of holidays, and it's further and further away, and beaches are no good anymore. You have to go scuba diving off the west coast of Ecuador with, in a shark cage or something like this. So it becomes more and more complicated. It's not like that. Getting a life, as I said, is an utterly simple matter. What it brings about is a discovery of yourself and then the expression of that beautifully and fully in everything you do. And as I said, if you look at children, if you take, say, the adult who can only be happy on the southwest coast of France and hot weather and all that, a child is happy when it's raining. 
and it's happy when it's sunny, and it's happy when it's cloudy. It's just happy. It brings the happiness when it jumps into the little puddles and when it steps out of them again. It's completely unconditional. While it's useful to look at measures and aspects like, you know, if life is out of balance, it's useful to look at all of these. But it's just not a matter of getting the work-life balance correct. You'll still have a miserable human being unless they have discovered who they are. That is the ultimate fulfillment. So that's why that question, when are you going to be perfectly happy? If you can't answer right now, then the answer is never. One needs to understand that. It is never. And the reason why it is never is because happiness is unconditional. There are no happy marriages. There are no careers that are ever going to make you happy. Husbands do not make wives happy and wives do not make husbands happy. You can all verify that. I can see it by your faces. <laughs> Nobody makes anybody happy. Nothing makes anybody happy. Happiness is within. It is your own self and it is not dependent on anybody else. What a marriage is, is a remarkable and glorious opportunity to express and share your happiness. But you won't get any out of it. And your wife will confirm that for you. <laughs> so, yes, anybody else? Hello, I wonder if you could answer me. I'm not too sure what happiness means. Do you think you could define what is happiness? Is it the, the um, not being unhappy? No, that would be quite a depressing way to describe it. <laughs> well, actually, when I'm using the word happy, maybe I should use a different word. You can look at it at three levels. You can look at the level of pleasure. Pleasure, we could call, is happiness for the body. So when the sun beats down on the back of your neck and you feel that heat and say, oh, fantastic. That's you know, pleasure or happiness for the body. Then there's a happiness which is a state of the mind, state of the heart. But then there's something called bliss, which is who you are, and it's not a state. We think that bliss or total happiness is quite a, an excited state. So I said, people, people say, I'm so happy, I'm looking forward to my holidays. That's not happiness, that's excitement. And there's only so much of that you can put up with. After a fortnight, that's enough for that happiness, I'm, <laughs> I, I need to go back home and get away from all this happiness. So bliss, or contentment, or happiness, as I was trying to use the word, is a very quiet state. Very quiet, very still. When sometimes when you look at a baby, a very young baby, let's say it's lying in a pram, you can see that it is absolutely happy in itself. Just being. Now what you do is you come along and you try and agitate it by tipping it under its chin. And you want it to express it in some way. So after about a minute or two it realizes the only way of getting rid of you is to grin at you. So it grins. And then you go away and says it's happy. 
It was happy before you came, and it was happy <laughs> So the happiness that I'm speaking of is not the product of anything. It's not the product of anything. It is inner, and it is your very self. It is a constant. So if I can use love, which we'd probably be more familiar with. People, when they like people, say it's a man dating a woman and uh, he says well I really like her he'll find that it sort of agitates his mind that as he's driving or as he's having a cup of coffee he's thinking about her so he thinks that love is a sort of a larger version of liking it's sort of like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly so that one day you move from like to really like to really, 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 really like. And, and then one day you think that that really, really, really like will just turn into love. Well, it doesn't. It turns into boredom and... <laughs> and what was I thinking about? So, really like doesn't turn into love. Just like infatuation never turns into love. Now, infatuation is hot. It agitates. And what we ordinarily call happiness is hot and it agitates but love is actually cool absolutely cool it doesn't take anything away from you it fills your being and no matter how much ever you give away you remain ever full and the same way with uh, bliss or happiness now no words can describe it so my answer is completely and utterly dissatisfying but just like somebody who has never loved might ask, well, what's love like? So that I might recognize it. There are no words you can tell that person. What you will say to them in the end, when you do truly love, you will know. And that's the correct answer. And when there is bliss, you'll know. You'll simply know. So that is the appallingly dissatisfying answer. <laughs> There's a lady just here, just here. Why do we actually lose this capacity of happiness that we have as small children? And at what age, maybe? Well, no, I'm not absolutely sure of this, but I think it's sometime around the age of two. <laughs> we decide to become miserable. <laughs> Basically, by forming an identity, or an identity begins to animate itself, stops being latent, and begins to form in the being. And that is, unfortunately, is uh, encouraged. Our individuality is encouraged at the expense of our universality. Now, there's nothing wrong with individuality, because that's part of the creation, but not at the expense of universality. And if you say, well, how, you know, how does it happen? If you take a window, and what will happen? The sun will pass through the window without any distortion or without any restriction. I know you could scientifically argue with this, but just assume that a clean window allows the sunlight to pass through it fully. So when a young child, its true nature passes through its mind, heart, body fully. But if you neglect a window, it accumulates dirt. You just can't help doing it. That's just the way creation is. The sun is still as bright as it ever was, but it won't pass through anymore. Some of it gets absorbed on meeting the glass, the dirty glass. Now, believe it or not, you and I are as full of love 
or bliss or knowledge as we ever were. That is our very nature. It is not possible for that to change. So if I can just divert for a second. An orange is always an orange because that's its nature. If you sneak into the kitchen very quickly and try and get an orange by surprise, you, you won't find it lying there as a banana. It doesn't do that. And it can't. It doesn't sort of try and shake itself back into orangeness because it is an orange. Now, our very nature is consciousness, knowledge, and bliss. But this human instrument, because of, we call it neglect or ignorance or whatever word we want to use, does not allow that to manifest gloriously or to its full extent. And the purpose of philosophy is, in a way, philosophy and washing windows are identical things. So it happens. If you say, well, how did it begin? What the wise say, that's not really the relevant question. The relevant question is, how may it be brought to an end? And the wise say, this is how you bring it to an end. And when you bring it to an end, then you know how it began. Does that help at all? It just strikes me. Sorry, if you, just, if you want to take the microphone back just to keep the recording aspect going. It just strikes me that it seems a shame that we lose it uh, for whatever reason, maybe because of the outer influence, and then we struggle for years on end afterwards to come back to that original state and then we die. You could look like that, but it's, it's not really a wise way to look at it. <laughs> did you ever play snakes and ladders? Oh, they did. All right. Can't remember too, can't remember too well. All right. But you, but you know the concept of snakes and ladders? Well, you know, if you didn't slide down the snake, there'd be no fun to the game. It's like Monopoly, there has to be going to jail. There has to be paying of rent. That's part of the game. The thing to do is to understand that it is a game. It is a game. Playing dead in a game is fantastic fun. You say, how long do I have to play dead for? Do I count to ten or a hundred? Even the dying is magnificent. Real opera style type dying. When it appears to be real, then it's appalling. But as a game, it's magnificent. So playing a part is what allows you to play it fully and with relish and with absolute enjoyment. It's not actually depressing. It's not depressing at all. If it was depressing, then the only films and plays that would ever be written would be comedies and ones with happy ending. But people love tragedies. They love drama. Because they know it's a play. So is it then that one needs to understand that you play a certain role at certain times? Absolutely. And then there is the other time when you are finding the root to yourself and you are just that essence within yourself. No, it's no, I'm sorry, there's just one correction I'm going to make. Yes. It's not that you give some of your life to discovering the truth of yourself and the other time you're playing mother or daughter or wife or business person or whatever. It's not like that. It's not two lives. It's one life. You find the truth about yourself when playing the role of father, when playing the role of son, brother, businessman, or anything like that. It is very, very important not to create two lives. One of the reasons why an awful lot of philosophy students are so miserable is because of this two-life concept. There's my philosophy life or my spiritual life, and then there's my mundane life. Well, that division has to go. 
The child doesn't divide. The child doesn't divide between weekdays and weekends. It doesn't divide between work and play. These are false divisions. It is a false division between the spiritual world and the mundane world. The waves on the ocean are the manifestation of the water. They're not two different worlds. You can't look at them separately. If I say to you, I want you to see the waves without seeing the water, you can't do it because the waves are the product or the form of the water. Well, this creation is a form of its underlying substance. And playing the various parts are forms of yourself. So never, never divide the world in two. It never satisfies and it tears the being apart because you know, they either sort of neglect their mother while they're at philosophy or while they're at philosophy they're thinking about their mother. It divides the world into two and then the mind cannot concentrate. While with your mother or while watching a rugby match or while digging the garden, be yourself. Always be yourself. And again, I've used this analogy, but if you take something like a really great actor, really great actor, does not forget who he is when playing the part. And even if we think what some actors do, their mother wouldn't. So if Laurence Olivier was playing the part of Hamlet and his mother came to watch him, she'd say, that's my Larry up there. <laughs> At all times, she would know it's Larry. Larry playing Hamlet. Now, there are times when I think I am father, or I am businessman, or I am driver, or I am Irish. But it's not true. They're just forms being played. And if that is remembered, then they're played beautifully, gloriously, and are magnificent opportunities to express oneself. That's it. Thank you. Okay. Yes, anybody else? A lady here. I used to be a Chelsea accountant. Yes. And you were, <laughs> you were saying that it's a burden to have too much money. I've always found that I've had enough money for the present, but as you get older, you want to save for retirement or worry that you're not going to have enough money for the future. So do you just trust that there will be enough money and the absolute will provide? No, it's a bit like this. Never provide out of fear. The fear is the burden. And these things are not universal. The fact that we're all humans doesn't mean we should all wear the same clothes. People have different colorings and different shapes of bodies, so different types of clothes will suit them. So there aren't universal regulations to cover the same situation for everybody. But it is sad when somebody provides for their old age out of fear that nobody will love them enough to care for them. And it doesn't bring out the best of one's children and these sorts of things. So it actually helps to support isolation and the family spreading apart and all of these sorts of things. So I'll tell you what I did, and this is not a universal thing. At a very early age, I told my son and my daughters that they were my pension scheme. <laughs> I said, you don't understand these words, but just learn to pronounce them. Pension scheme. <laughs> So I told them that I was quite happy to spend the money on them, that I was going to invest in them. And if you asked me, would I prefer to trust an insurance company or my son? 
I will take my son every time. I don't think my son will say, I'm sorry, Dad, inflation went berserk. <laughs> right? Or the investment strategist got it wrong. I think his, if I may be so bold to say, his love for me and my wife will transcend all those things. And I think then there's a possibility that if you can inculcate or help to inculcate those sort of ideas into the next generation, you will get sons and daughters who will not confine their love and support to their parents. It will be their first step. They will provide for themselves and their own family unit if they happen to marry, but they will also help their parents. But then they will begin to look out further in their community and in their nation and in humanity and in the universe. So there's nothing wrong with generating very large sums of money. By the way, it doesn't take any wisdom to generate money. But it takes tremendous wisdom to spend it wisely. It's what you do with it. That's where the wisdom is. So you don't become a burden. But you don't encourage people not to fulfill their duties. And the young should care for the old. And the capable should care for those who are challenged. Absolutely. So there might be a time to provide for your pension and there might be a time when that would be the wrong thing to do in that particular family unit. It's very much an individual thing. So is that okay? Yes, there was somebody else just back there on the right. So the question is, would I say more about self-reflection or self-analysis? Yes, that's why I'm repeating it. <laughs> Sorry, I'll just say it again, just so that you do it. So the question was, could I say more about self-reflection or self-analysis? Because remember, the three factors were meditation, knowledge, and self-reflection or self-analysis. Well, I, I just say the way that I would practice this, and that I have found useful, is to take great statements of truth, whether said to me by a friend or father or found in scripture or by the wise, and then to let one's own life present itself in relation to that statement. So if I just take one that I remember had a remarkable effect on me, I was in Townley Hall, which is our residential building in Ireland. I was in my early 30s and I was thinking to myself that I was a fantastic man. <laughs> there I was giving up a whole week to the study of truth while all those commercially besotted twits were filling their coffers. Anyway, appalling set of thoughts going through my mind. Mr. McLaren was taking the meeting. And Mr. McLaren said, one day, he said it to everybody, but I was sure he was particularly directing it towards me. He said, one day, all your actions would have to become honest ones. I worked as a chartered accountant, and a cold sweat appeared. And literally, you know, I, it was soaking down uh, the side of my neck. As I thought of the way, up to that point, that I had negotiated deals how I'd sought to maximize the money, but the, the sort of tactics and strategies and all that sort of stuff that I'd used. I thought, how will it be possible, thought word indeed, to become an honest man and work? 
But what was very evident to me, that there was no point in me seeking the truth and at the same time not being an absolutely honest man, that they were incongruous. So the decision was made to become an honest man. And then one reflected on that. What would that mean? How could one buy and sell companies and do business and try to maximize prices while staying absolutely true to honesty? And it is very challenging. So with self-analysis, to go back to that, my experience is to take great statements of truth or great lies and then reflect on them and see how they might apply in one's own life. And it's a bit like holding up a mirror or a white screen and everything is revealed against it. Again, I've told this before, but I've been asked to become leader of the school in Ireland. Uh, I thought I, there was a manual for leaders. I thought that there must be some book somewhere where they're told what to do. Nobody gave me any manual. So I asked uh, Mr. McLaren, well, is there anything you can tell me about being a leader? And he said, you may have no friends. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> so I went away and I reflected on that. Now, it was obvious to me that it didn't mean that I should deliberately become more obnoxious than I am and try and create everybody into enemies, but that I should have no favourites. That it was not right to prefer one person at the school over another person. And so that the leadership must be devoid of any bias or prejudice or favouritism. And when that came into the mind, and I was reflecting on this, what also appeared in the mind were all the people I didn't like in the school, of which there were many. <laughs> and I thought, how is it going to be possible to do this? And that seemed very, very challenging. So one allowed the mind to show up the light from where all this favoritism and prejudice was. And then decide, okay, I'd have to work at this to eliminate that. My experience of self-analysis, you hold up a statement, a great statement of truth, and you allow your current life to present itself against that statement. And the differences between the two reveal themselves. And then you apply love and reason to say, well, how may this gap, this integrity gap, as we referred, be dissolved? So you can take a virtue. You can say, what would it mean to be magnanimous? What about patience? In what way is this being not patient? And rest assured, if your own mind doesn't deliver the answer, your wife will tell you with <laughs> remarkable clarity and intense detail, and then you can begin to work on it. So that's how I do it. I think it's the best way. If you take something like, I'd like to be nicer than I am now, it's too wishy-washy. You have to take something absolute. So, as been said before, say there was a whiteboard here, and I drew a circle. Immediately on completion of that circle, you will judge the circle. And you will judge it in relation to a perfect circle. And you'll say that was well drawn or not so well drawn. Automatically, the mind throws up the perfect circle. So in self-analysis, my experience anyway, is to throw up that which is true and limitless and perfect and then allow how one's life, in its expressions, compares to that. Not in a depressing sort of way. It's not depressing at all, in fact. Even though you may find things which are not particularly glorious manifesting through your body, mind and heart. But holding in mind the perfection 
then you see it as a challenge and as a glorious ideal worth striving for. Does that answer it? Yes. Yes, anybody else? Yes. When you say there's going to be a reaction by others, yes, it's going to enhance their lives. <laughs> by the way, I think the amplifying microphone may have been switched off. You may just look at that. So again, if you didn't hear the question, the question was about doing what you love to do. And that surely, or if you do do that, might that, or that would cause a reaction in family members, etc., etc. That shouldn't be the case at all. Because the reality is, when a member of the family is happy, it enhances the happiness of all members of the family. It doesn't produce a jealousy. We know this from the opposite, that when somebody is miserable in the family, it can often bring down lots of people, lots of the members of the family, in the same way with happiness. So, and the purpose of the family, and by the way, is to encourage people to find their outlets or their modes of expression of happiness. What's important is that it doesn't become selfish. You, know, you can have somebody who says, I love golf, and I play seven days a week, and I text my wife once a, a month just to let her know I'm still out there. <laughs> now, when something causes you to neglect what is true and just, that is not a source of happiness. That is being possessed by something. It has an intensity to it which causes the mind to go dark. It's like people in a sale. Do you know when there's these sales and 75% off? And you see these people rushing through the doors to try and get out. That is not out of a love of clothes. This is not an expression of love as you trample over the little old lady to get the 75% discount. It is greed. That's all it is. So you will find that a real pursuit of happiness does not produce misery elsewhere. This is a very, very important point. It's like sometimes people say, well, love has caused me misery. Something like that. Well, it's not possible. Love can't cause misery. And happiness cannot cause misery. It must have been an impure love or an impure happiness if it produces a side effect like that. So, so that's the first point. So a true pursuit of happiness will not be the cause of the reaction. Where there are other family members, you can get things like jealousy and envy or needs. And uh, they can react, but it's not because of what you're doing, but because of some lack in them. You can sometimes have a, say, uh, we make it a man, and the man takes up practical philosophy, and he goes out one night a week or two nights a week to his philosophy class. And his wife then has a reaction to that and says, you know, you're neglecting the family and all these sorts of things. Well, she may very well be right. He may very well be neglecting his family, but he will not fulfill his family by just stopping philosophy. What he really needs to do is to find out how to really care for her. To really care for her. If a person finds themselves in the school of philosophy, and they're, let's say they're male, 
they need to discover what it means to be husband as well as what it means to be yourself and really satisfy wife and really satisfy child and really satisfy employees and employers and citizenship and all these sort of things uh, and you will find that because of let's say philosophy it allows one to do this fully and efficiently so that a life can become bigger and bigger with more and more activity if needs be but without any dilution of duty or neglect if there is neglect the man says I'm putting truth first and I'm neglecting my wife then he does not know what truth is so there should not be a reaction when somebody is pursuing their true and substantial happiness and if there is then as I said there's something within the person who's having the reaction and one needs to discover what that is and satisfy it does that help? yeah Yes. Do you attend the school? Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to speak at a, again at a very personal level. If you were my mother, or my daughter, or my wife, I would have no greater wish for you than to take up meditation. It is the single greatest technique available to man to discover the truth about himself. If you take up meditation and you play fair, I, did you give it your best shot? It would be the one day in your life that you would be grateful for, really grateful for, the day you took up meditation. Sometimes people say to me, you know, about success, and I say, well, I have found something that you cannot buy for billions. So I consider myself a remarkably wealthy man. So if you said to me, you can have 20 billion, but you cannot meditate for a week, and you can keep your money. I will not insult this remarkable thing, which is a gift of the wise. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It is the culmination of all simplicity, according to Shantananda Saraswati. But its simplicity means that we make a dog's dinner of it and <laughs> make it absolutely complicated. But if one can retain simplicity and take direction from tutor and everything like that, then Meditation is the greatest gift that you will ever receive. It's a bit like this, or this is a way of looking at it, it's a mundane way of looking at it, but it's like this. Say you were not to bathe for a period of time, let's say make it a month, there would be very noticeable effects. There'd be nobody sitting to your left or to your right, <laughs> and maybe disease would now begin to manifest in the body. So it's very obvious that the body needs washing. And because of its use every day, it needs washing every day, and sometimes twice a day or whatever. Now, we also use our minds and hearts. And just as the body accumulates dirt, the mind and the heart accumulate a form of dirt. In the heart, it might be a hardness of heart, or negative emotions such as envy or jealousy or anger or worry or these sort of things. And in the mind, it could be prejudice and false opinion and all these sort of things. Now, we need to find a way to wash the mind and heart. It's not sufficient to go asleep. Let's say you didn't wash the body and you went to sleep. I'm afraid that when you wake up the next morning, it's still going to be the same dirty old body. 
It doesn't self-cleanse itself while asleep. The mind and heart also do not cleanse themselves during sleep. They enjoy a break from misery for eight hours or whatever, but they don't cleanse themselves. Well, meditating twice a day is like taking a mental and emotional or spiritual, whatever way you want to put it, bath twice a day. It keeps this glass that we spoke about. It helps to keep it absolutely clean so that the fullness of your real self may express itself in life. When the glass is seen, you see what's on the other side of the glass. And if you keep this glass clean and you meditate, there will be moments when you absolutely see the truth about yourself. And you'll see that you are consciousness, limitless consciousness. That your very nature is bliss supreme. That all knowledge resides here. There is no misery. You become transcendent. And with that, life becomes, all fear goes from life. Because you know that nothing can harm you. You may cut the body, but you cannot cut spirit. You may burn the body, but you cannot burn spirit. Now, you will get glimpses of it in meditation. And those glimpses will then fuel the life. As time goes on, those glimpses will become deeper and deeper, and then they begin to expand. Truth will become naturalized in you. It's the most amazing thing, because all you have to do is you have to sit down, and ultimately, for 30 minutes, to the best of your ability, to give your mind to a repeating sound, and let the sound do all the work. You know, when a baby uh, is agitated, and the mother comes along, and uh, she says, the baby doesn't have to do anything to go asleep. The sound does it all. All that has to happen is the baby doesn't resist the sound. That sound, just brings about that rest. In meditation, you don't have to do anything other than attend to the mantra. The mantra does it all for you. So when I come back next year, you can tell me that everything I said was absolutely true. The following questions and answers are from the same talk recorded in Melbourne. I wonder if you can help. Why is it when it seems so simple, do I make it so hard? Yes. Um, <laughs> it really is because we don't use the right instrument. We use a lower level of mind which is full of complexity. So if you ask yourself about this lower level of mind, it really is not satisfied with anything. The television should be two inches bigger, the coffee should be a bit hotter, you should be a little bit more in the cup, all of these sort of things. So we take simplicity and we put conditions on it. And it's this putting of conditions which makes everything complex. For example, we don't do it with children. When a child is born into our family, we don't make any demands on it. We don't say, God, I wish its eyes were a bit further apart. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, uh, or, I hope it doesn't believe in euthanasia. <laughs> so, the very birth of the child 
means that we work from a higher level of our existence, which is one of total simplicity. But ordinarily, in our day-to-day living, we're operating from a lower level, which is full of complexity. And the thing to do is to operate from that higher level. And that higher level literally sees everybody as yourself. And there's nothing more simple than that. All preference goes. Everything is enjoyed. Everybody is seen, as I said, as yourself. And so, instead of loving one or two or four or five, you love without limit. And it's such a tragedy, given this potentiality. So it's a matter of using the finest in us, which enjoys that simplicity. So the heart, if it operates from love, enjoys simplicity. If the mind operates from reason, it enjoys unity or simplicity. But if you use feelings instead of love, then life gets very complex. And if you use opinions as opposed to reason, then life gets very complex. So the key is not to use opinions, but to find reason, which unites everything, and to find love, which embraces everything. So that's the complex answer to your simple question. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, anybody else? What would be the best help to unwanted thoughts coming back today? Unwanted thoughts. Sorry, yes, there's a deaf man at the back there. (laughs) Mr. Jepson, will you put him on the stronger tablets? (laughs) What advice would be given to stop unwanted thoughts which keep recurring? Now, the thing about it is this, that there is a temporary measure, but it will not satisfy The temporary measure is to occupy the mind with other things. And for so long as the mind is occupied, then the unwanted thoughts will not present themselves. But unfortunately, just as you're going to sleep at night, they do present themselves, or when there is lack of occupation. The only way is to resolve them. The thoughts come back because they are being kept alive. A thought only lives for about five seconds. Now, you may not be aware of this, but having the same thought over and over again is like digging granny up (laughs) to see what state she's in right now. (laughs) And then you say, God, she's getting worse. We are sort of like grave robbers. But that's what it's actually like. But what's required is to resolve it. Is to resolve it. Let's say somebody has given offence in some way. Somebody has hurt one. And there's genuine hurt and it has left the scar. There are two things. The first thing is one needs to come to understand why the person behaves that way. And when you do understand why the person has behaved in that way, you will understand that it was not personal. There is nothing personal in this creation. When the dog is chasing the cat, it ain't personal. (laughs) That's just the way dogs are. If ignorance lies in the heart of a human being, they will behave that way. It's nothing personal. When you really come to understand why the person behaved in that way, 
what arises is not anger or insult or any of these things, but is compassion. Because you would not wish to have that same heart hardened in that same way. So compassion arises. Then the attention naturally goes to relieve that person of their ignorance, rather than taking insult. The second thing is that when you come to discover who you are, if you really dedicate yourself to that, then nobody can harm you. Things only hurt when you lose perspective. So if you're a child and somebody gives you a dollar and you lose it, it's as if the whole world is full of injustice. (laughs) My dollar's gone. But if you've got a million dollars and you lose one, it makes no difference. So you will find, and this is without insult, the smaller you make your life, the more important everything in it is going to be. So if you make your life large, then everything takes up its true value. And then you will find that nothing disturbs that innermost part of you. And that's where you live from. So that's it. Okay. Yes. Um, you mentioned about scattered. Yes. Did you hear that? Okay, about the integrity gap. I had mentioned the phrase the integrity gap and how could we narrow or eliminate that gap or expand on it more. To give yourself to a career that you don't love lacks integrity. Right? To say what you don't mean lacks integrity. Think of all the things that you love to do that you've given up doing because you're too busy or you're trying to accumulate this or that. That lacks integrity. A person with integrity is a person who's the same on the inside as the outside. And just to give you, uh, this is uh, sort of an example at a level, this daughter who found the man in her life has now, or they have produced two children. But anyway, Harry is about 15 months, or was 15 months old when this happened. Myself, my daughter and Harry went for lunch together. Her mother bought Harry some food and she put it into his mouth and he just stuck his tongue back out. I thought, that is fantastic. (laughs) Think of the honesty there. The the amount of horrible soup that I have eaten. (laughs) (laughs) And praised and all sorts of things. And all he does, and is he loved any less because he sticks his tongue out and it falls on the floor? Not at all. He's actually loved because he does. You could try that. without hurting the feelings of others one should have integrity and you'll find that there is a gap if you really look at your life there is a gap the real question is how do you narrow the gap yes well you narrow the gap by being true to yourself it's as simple as that if I said to you what do you want on your gravestone here lies a false man you don't want that You want to be true to yourself. So, for example, you go out to a film and you think it's fantastic. You think it's the best film you've ever seen. And you go into the office the next day and you rant and rave about this film, how wonderful it is. And somebody else says, actually, I thought it was a bit childish. And you say, well, yeah, on deep reflection now, maybe it wasn't as good as I thought it was. (laughs) 
And we do this. If our opinions differentiate us, then we want to blend in. And then when we're totally devoid of personality and any difference at all, we think, oh God, I want to be different again. So we change our hairstyle or buy some outlandish clothes or something like this, or we, we say, I've become, you know, I now follow Trotsky or something like this. <laughs> so that we can become interesting again. <laughs> right? And then when we move from interesting to being a bit weird, then we move back again. Right? <laughs> it's all this, and you find this. You find that you're trying to blend in and also stand out. And it's exhausting. <laughs> and you find children don't try to blend in. They don't care about anything. If they've got something to tell you, you should put the phone down, basically. <laughs> Why would you be talking to anybody else? I've got something to say. <laughs> and what's a rugby match if I want to show you the eggs that I drew in school today? It's fantastic honesty. Now... No, it's total self... Somebody said, is it ego? Yeah. No, it's complete self-love. The world revolves around me. I'm adorable. <laughs> Why would anybody not be interested in what I've got to say? Do children rehearse what they're going to say? Say, will I say, I love you? I love you? Yeah. Do you think a few adverbs would get me more food? Yeah. <laughs> oh. You've rehearsed those words because you have an ego. Without an ego, why would you rehearse? Can you talk about ego? It's very interesting. Ego is very interesting. <laughs> we call it ego, but it could be many things. Yes, but what happens is that the human being, for a whole variety of reasons, becomes identified with the body and mind. So it forgets its true essence. It forgets that it is spirit, that it is consciousness, that it is eternal, that it is pure love, limitless wisdom, that it is ever at peace, always free. And it thinks it is five foot six of reasonable intelligence, you know, Australian, well actually, sorry, low intelligence, Australian. <laughs> <laughs> You can always say one of these at the end of a talk. <laughs> uh, it forms this view because the mind will not accept a vacuum. So it creates a character who it believes that it is. And then this is reinforced by everybody. But it doesn't actually exist. It's an error in the mind. And the idea is to use the mind again to undo that error. Now this doesn't mean that personality will disappear but it will be the limitless expressing itself through a form. So Mozart did it through music. Leonardo da Vinci did it through art. Shakespeare did it through drama. So it will take up a particular form, but that form, albeit limited in itself, will remind you of something amazing beyond it. Let's take very poor art. Poor art leaves you in the senses. You say, I like the red, or I like the shape. Slightly better art will take you beyond the physical to the subtle, 
So you pick up a quality. Even though the painting is made up of physical things, it represents a subtle quality, which could be despair or joy or something like that, which doesn't have a shape or a colour. But the really greatest art takes you from the form to the formless. Takes you all the way back. So when you know who you are, and then you allow that to manifest through a particular form, then you will remind everybody of that which lies behind. You know it yourself and you remind everybody else. It is not that in a way that the ego is eliminated because there still is an ego, but it is not master, it is servant. It serves to give expression to your essence. When it is master, it's an appalling thing as any of your friends will verify. <laughs> Why? One last one, is that right? Yes. Uh, yes, I have really asked this question. I want to ask a question about choices. Yes. How does one make a choice? Well, to keep it very simple, how do you make choices? Well, it's a bit like the original question. You must use that higher part of your mind. If you use the lower part of the mind, what the lower part of the mind does is it produces pros and cons with regard to a decision. Let's say you're going to buy a house. You say, well, the kitchen is big and the back garden faces south. However, the, there's a Rottweiler next door and there could be a rubbish dump built down the road. And you try to weigh them up and you think, well, now, are there enough pros to buy the house or do the cons outweigh the pros? And then you go to sleep on it. And, of course, the mind thinks up more pros and more cons. You need another sheet of paper. And it just goes on and on and on. And in the end, you run out of time, and the house is either sold or you just buy it in desperation. Now, that's not the way to buy a house. Assume it's not an investment. What you do is you hold home in your heart. And when you hold home in your heart, you know it on the instant. This used to drive me insane when we were looking for a home. Because we would drive up to a house and she'd say, no. I'd say, but, <laughs> but we haven't got in yet. And I said, that, you know, the, the sitting room was 15 foot 11 and a half inches by an average of 11 foot 9. Think of that. She'd say, no. So I would drag her around every room, measuring the rooms and all sorts of things like this, looking to where the sun was in the sky. And in the end, I would end up saying no. And you could see what a remarkably patient woman she had become. <laughs> anyway, what you do is you must go from pros and cons to principle. When you don't use principle, what you try and do is you try to predict the future. You try to make the decision based on imagined consequences. So you try to say, if I do this, this will be the consequence. But we don't have the gift of prophecy. So we don't know what the consequences are. So we imagine them. And if you're a depressive, you imagine appalling consequences. And if you're a, an optimist, you imagine very benign consequences. 
So nobody gets it right. But what you can do is you can turn to principle. And then consequences are irrelevant. So you need to verify yourself that a good act bears good fruit and a bad act bears bad fruit. So you can look into your heart and say, what is the motivation for this action? And if you know it is good, you will not know what fruit it will bear, but you will know it is good fruit. So you need not worry. And you can always look into your heart and you can know. If you really look, and there's an objectivity there, you will know the motivation there. And then just to give you a sort of a slightly more detailed answer, the Shankaracharya, the man that the School of Philosophy put all its questions to, he said there are five levels of decision-making. So an individual can make a decision at the level of the individual. So for me, he can make it at the level of family. He can make it at the level of nation or society. He can make it at the level of humanity. And he can make it at the level of the universe. The higher the level, the less the ego can participate in the decision. So it becomes purer and purer and purer. And if I just finish with this example, I have been to the schools of philosophy in South Africa. And I have not seen this elsewhere. It may very well be elsewhere. But what you see is young men and women there choosing their careers on what their country needs. And it is the most heart-melting thing when you see an 18 or 19-year-old say, I am going to be a judge because this country needs honest judges. And you know they won't fail because of the level at which they're making the decision. So if you really want your decisions to bear fruit, then let the intent be pure and then seek it to be motivated by the highest level. Then you won't go wrong. Thank you very much.